Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This week's episode is titled, Keeping a Record. The first three centuries of church history are at times a difficult puzzle to sort out because no coherent historical narrative was being kept. Luke's account in the book of Acts recounts a time span of about 30 years and roughly narrates the spread of the faith from Jerusalem to Rome. The next narrative doesn't come till the writings of the church historian Eusebius in the 4th century. What we have for a period of over 200 years are the writings of the fathers, whose letters give little more than a thumbnail sketch of what was happening. We have to infer and assume a lot by picking up what facts we can about what was happening. As we've seen, the work of the church fathers focused mainly on providing pastoral and apologetic support. Gaining an historical framework for this period comes from merging secular accounts of history with the commentary of the fathers. But with the work of Eusebius at the opening of the 4th century, the narrative becomes significantly clearer. Eusebius began compiling his magnum opus of church history in the 290s, titled Ecclesiastical History. It's an attempt to provide a narrative of the communion of the saints from the apostles to his time. Eusebius was born and raised in Caesarea on the coast of Israel. He was a student of the Christian leader Pamphilius, who was himself a student of the great apologist Origen. Eusebius became the bishop at Caesarea in 313. He played a major role in the Council of Nicaea in 325, which we'll take a closer look at in a future episode. Eusebius is a key figure in the study of church history because his ecclesiastical history is the first work after Luke's, to attempt an historical narrative of the faith. He's also an important figure because of his close association with the Emperor Constantine. I want to quote the opening of Eusebius' narrative because, well, it gives us a sense of the monumental nature of his work. He knew that he was attempting to reconstruct a narrative of the church from scant resources. In chapter 1, which he titled The Plan of the Work, he writes this, quote, It is my purpose to write an account of the succession of the holy apostles, as well as of the times which have elapsed from the days of our Savior to our own, and to relate the many important events which are said to have occurred in the history of the church, and to mention those who have governed and presided over the church in the most prominent parishes, and those who in each generation have proclaimed the divine word either orally or in writing. It is my purpose also to give the names and number and times of those who through love of innovation have run into the greatest errors, and, proclaiming themselves discoverers of knowledge falsely so called, have like fierce wolves unmercifully devastated the flock of Christ. But at the outset I must crave for my work the indulgence of the wise, for I confess that it is beyond my power to produce a perfect and complete history, and since I am the first to enter upon the subject, I am attempting to traverse, as it were, a lonely and untrodden path." I pray that I may have God as my guide and the power of the Lord as my aid, since I am unable to find even the barest footsteps of those that have traveled the way before me, except in brief fragments, in which some in one way, others in another, have transmitted to us particular accounts of the times in which they lived. From afar, they raise their voices like torches, and they cry out, as from some lofty and conspicuous watchtower, admonishing us where to walk and how to direct the course of our work steadily and safely. Having gathered, therefore, from the matters mentioned here and there by them whatever we consider important for the present work, 
and having plucked like flowers from a meadow the appropriate passages from ancient writers, we shall endeavor to embody the whole in an historical narrative. This work seems to me of a special importance because I know of no ecclesiastical writer who has devoted himself to this subject, and I hope that it will appear most useful to those who are fond of historical research." Unquote. Eusebius was unaware of any previous attempt to provide an historical narrative of the development of the faith from the late 1st century to his time in the early 4th, a period of a little over 200 years. From a modern perspective, Eusebius' account might be considered suspect, relying as it does on tradition and at best fragmentary evidence. What must be remembered is the importance of that oral tradition and the accuracy of such transmission over long periods of time. Because the ancient world didn't possess cheap and plentiful means of recording information, it was dependent on oral tradition and rote memorization. With the advent of the printing press and more economic media, the priority of the oral tradition declined. Eusebius had both written and oral source material to draw from. His work can be considered dependable, while subject to question when it leaned toward the ancient penchant for using history as propaganda. As we return now to the narrative timeline of church history, we need to pick up the story with the reign of Diocletian, who presided over the last and in many ways the worst round of persecution under the Roman emperors. Though Christians tend to remember Diocletian for that persecution, he was, in truth, one of the most effective of the Roman emperors. By the time that he came to the throne, the Roman Empire was a sprawling and unwieldy beast of a realm to rule. The city of Rome was an old and decayed relic of its former glory. So, Diocletian moved his headquarters eastward to Nicomedia in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Instead of trying to exert control over the entire empire himself and solely, Diocletian appointed Maximian as co-emperor to rule the western half of the empire from Rome while he ruled in the east. One of the persistent problems that led to so much unrest in the recent decades was the question of succession, that is, who would rule after the current emperor. To forestall that turmoil, Diocletian appointed dual successors for both himself and Maximian. Flavius Constantius became Maximian's successor, while Diocletian took on Galerius. This established what's known as the Tetrarchy. While Diocletian had no warm and fuzzy feelings for the followers of Christ, it was really his successor, Galerius, that urged him to launch a campaign of persecution. Galerius was a military commander who thought that Christians made poor soldiers. He knew that their loyalty was supremely to their god and thought that they would make for unreliable troops. Galerius was also a committed pagan who believed in the Roman deities. He attributed any setback for the army and any of the regular natural disasters that shook the realm to their displeasure that so many of the Rome's subjects were turning to the new god on the block. And so it was really at Galerius's urging that Diocletian approved the severe measures taken against Christians in their churches. When Diocletian retired to his villa to raise cabbages and turn the eastern half of the empire over to Galerius, persecution increased. Eventually, Constantius replaced Maximian in the west, just as Galerius had assumed the mantle in the east. And Diocletian's tetrarchy began to unravel. Galerius decided that he wanted to be sole ruler and abducted Constantius's son, Constantine, who had been named successor to his father in the west. When Constantius fell ill, Galerius granted Constantine permission to visit him. 
Constantius died, and Constantine demanded that Galerius recognize him now as co-emperor in the West. No doubt Galerius would have launched a military campaign against Constantine's bid for rule of the West, but Galerius himself was stricken with a deadly illness. On his deathbed, Galerius admitted that his policy of persecution of Christians hadn't worked, and he rescinded his policy of oppression. In the West, Constantine's claim to his father's throne was contested by Maximian's son, Maxentius. The showdown between them is known as the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Maxentius didn't want Constantine marching his troops into Rome, and so he tore down the Milvian Bridge after marching his troops across it to meet Constantine. Just in case the battle went against Maxentius, he had a temporary bridge built of a string of boats across the river so that he could make good his escape. At this point, the story gets confused, because there's so many who've written about what happened, and the reports are quite varied. On the day before the battle, Constantine prayed, most likely to the sun god. As he did, he looked toward the sun and says that he saw a cross in the sky. Then either he saw the words or heard them spoken by this sign conquer. That night while he slept, Jesus appeared to him in a dream, telling him to have his soldiers place a Christian symbol on their shields. The next morning, chalk was quickly passed round, and the soldiers put what's called the Chiron on their shields. Chi and Rho are the first two letters of the Greek word Christos, Christ. In English, it looks like a P on top of an X. When the two forces met, Constantine's veterans bested Maxentius's less experienced troops, who retreated to their makeshift bridge. While crossing, Maxentius fell into the water and drowned. Constantine then marched victoriously into Rome. A year later, he and his new co-emperor, Licinius, issued what's known as the Edict of Milan, which decreed an end to all religious persecution, not just of Christians, but of all faiths. For Constantine, Jesus was now his divine patron, and the cross, an emblem of shame and derision for generations, became instead a kind of charm. Instead of being a symbol of Rome's brutality in executing its enemies, the cross became a symbol of imperial power. Bishops began to be called priests as they gained parity with their peers in pagan temples. These Christian priests were shown special favors by Constantine. It didn't take long for the pagan priests to realize which way the winds of political favor were blowing, and so many of them converted. Now, there's been much debate over the legitimacy of Constantine's conversion. Was he genuinely born again? Or was he just a savvy politician who recognized a trend that he could co-opt and turn to his favor? People will disagree on this, and my meager offering is unlikely to convince anyone. But I think that Constantine was probably a genuine Christian. He certainly did some things after his conversion that are difficult to reconcile with his sincere faith, but we have to remember the moral base that he grew up in as a son of a Caesar and as a general of Roman legions. It was very different from the biblical morality that shaped Western civilization. Also, Constantine's actions, which are so decidedly non-Christian, like murdering those who threatened his power, may have been rationalized not as personal acts, so much as attempts to secure the peace and safety of the empire. Now, I know that's a stretch, but when analyzing history, well, we need to be careful about judging people when we don't have at our disposal all the facts they did. If we could sit down with Constantine and say, you know, you shouldn't have executed that guy. He could very well say something like, yeah, as a Christian, I shouldn't have. 
you're right, but I didn't execute him out of personal anger or suspicion or mere selfishness. It really bothers me that I had to off that guy, but I discovered that he was plotting to usurp my throne and it would have thrown the empire into years of civil war and chaos. To which we'd reply, well, Constantine, you need to trust God more. He'll protect you. I mean, after all, he put you on the throne. He can certainly keep you there. And Constantine might reply, yeah, I considered that and I agree, but it's a tough call. You see, in terms of my personal life, I trust God. But when it comes to my role as emperor, well, I need to make tough choices that others who don't wield such power will never understand. Let's not forget that Constantine, while being a competent general and astute politician, was at best a novice believer. I share this little made-up discussion because it points up something that we're going to encounter again and again in our review of the history of the church. We look on past ages on what they believed and the things that they did with an attitude of moral superiority because we wouldn't do those terrible things they did or we assume would do some things they failed to do. We need to be cautious with this attitude for the simple reason that when we take the time to listen to the voices of the past and let them explain themselves, we often come to a new appreciation for the difficulty of their lives and choices. We may not agree with them, but we at least realize that in their own minds and hearts, they thought they were doing what was best. Now, you make up your own mind about the genuineness of Constantine's faith, but let me encourage you to spend a little time looking up what Eusebius wrote about him and some of the tough decisions that Constantine had to make during his reign. Some of the things regarded as incompatible with a genuine conversion is that he retained his title of Pontifex Maximus, and the head of the state religious cult. He conceived and hatched political plots to remove his enemies, and he murdered those that were deemed a threat to his power. On the other hand, from 312 on, his favor of Christianity was quite public. He granted the same privilege to bishops that pagan priests enjoyed. He banned crucifixion and ended the punishment of criminals by using them in the gladiatorial games. He made Sunday a holiday, his personal charity built several large churches, and his private life demonstrates a pretty consistent, genuine faith. His children were brought up in the church, and he practiced marital fidelity, at least as far as we know. That, of course, was certainly not the case with previous emperors or even the wider Roman nobility. Critics like to point out Constantine's delay of baptism to shortly before his death as evidence of a lack of faith. I suggest that it ought to be read exactly the opposite. Remember what we learned about baptism a few episodes back. In that time, it was believed that after baptism, there were certain sins that couldn't be forgiven. So, people delayed baptism to as close as death as possible, leaving little chance for the commission of such a sin to occur. Following his baptism, Constantine never again donned the imperial purple of his office, but instead wore only his white baptismal robes. That sounds like he was concerned to enter heaven, not a casual disregard for it. Chief among Constantine's concerns upon taking control of the empire was unity. It was unity and strength that had moved Diocletian to establish the Tetrarchy. Decades of civil war, as one powerful general after another seized control and beat down his challengers, had desperately weakened and impoverished the realm. Now that Constantine ruled, he hoped that the church would help bring a new era of unity based on a vital and dynamic faith. 
It didn't take long before he realized the very thing that he hoped would bring unity was itself fractured. When the church was battered and beaten by imperial persecution, it was forced to be one. But when that pressure was removed, the theological cracks that had been developing for a while became immediately evident. Chief among them was the Donatist controversy that we recently considered. In 314, the Donatists appealed to Constantine to settle the issue on who could ordain elders. Think about what a momentous change this was. The church appealed to the civil authority to rule on a spiritual affair. By doing so, the church was asking for imperial sponsorship. And at this point, we need a robot to wave its arms maniacally and cry, Danger, Will Robinson, danger! Constantine knew that this was not a decision that he was capable of making on his own, and so he gathered some church leaders in Arles in the south of France to decide the issue. The Donatist bishops were outnumbered by the non-Donatists, and so you know where this is going. They decided against the Donatists. Instead of accepting the decision, the Donatists called the leaders who opposed them corrupt and labeled the emperor their lackey. The church split between the Donatist churches of North Africa and the rest who now looked to Constantine as their leader. As tensions rose, the emperor sent troops to Carthage in 317 to enforce the installation of a pro-government bishop who was opposed by the Donatists. For the first, but far the last time, Christians were persecuting Christians. Opponents of Constantine were exiled from Carthage. After four years, he realized his strong-arm tactics weren't working and withdrew his troops. We'll pick it up at this point next time. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.